Well, I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2009, can you remember back that far? 2009, there was a couple, Mikael and Tarek Salahi. It was a married couple, actually from Virginia, that crashed President Obama's very first state dinner. Do you remember that? It was a White House dinner for the Indian Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh. The very first one, and so, of course, you know, the first of anything that you do, you want it to go off well, and this one didn't. Um, this, this couple was, was already kind of in, in, the, in the media. Uh, the, the wife was already being filmed for Bravo TV's The Real Housewives of D.C. Hopefully you don't know what that show is. And the couple just showed up at the White House. They went through two checkpoints one of which checked them for photo identification. Now, this is the White House, okay? And they walk right into the dinner without, without credentials. They even dressed up that evening in traditional Indian garb as a, as a statement of honor for the, for the honored guests. So, I mean, they stuck out. I mean, she has the, the long, flowing red, whatever the, the, the Indian dress would, would be called. And mingled with the guests for a few hours, and then, and then they eventually leave. At, at the end. And no one at the White House was even wiser until later that night, Mikhail posted pics on her Facebook page with candidates of President Obama, uh, Vice President Biden, and that that point, Chief of Staff uh, Rahm Emanuel. And upon an internal review of the guest list, it was discovered that um, not only the the, the Selahis, but a third completely unrelated guy that named Carlos Allen that still this day no one even knows you know, who he was or where he came from, just some random guy. He also got in the state dinner that night without credentials. So, of course, when all this came to light, the, the Indian security officials were furious. It was a tremendous embarrassment to the White House, to the Secret Service, and specifically the staffer that was responsible for the guest list and and security. And, and so this couple, after being questioned about being party crashers, the Salahis went on the cable morning shows, denied being uninvited guests. She even, you know, feigned being appalled at the accusation and said that she was going to turn something good out of something bad and she was going to put her dress and her jewelry up on eBay, an auction, and she would give all the money that was made from it to, to charity. Well, it was finally confirmed that they weren't on the list. They weren't even known by the White House for that matter. And sadly, since the couple has divorced and returned to obscurity where every other reality TV show participant goes after their 15 minutes or eight years or however long we watch uh, of, of fame. The Salahis pretended to be something that they were, that they were not. And they were eventually exposed when they were not found on the guest list. That's what they went back to, was the guest list for the state dinner. And they were not found on the guest list. And in Luke 14, we just sang about this parable that we're going to look at this morning. In Luke 14, you find Jesus at a Sabbath lunch where He exposes some guests of His own. And in the process, He makes a parallel to a feast, which is this parable. The parable of the Great Supper. 
he makes a parallel to this feast, which is far more important than the first, second, or 1,000th White House state dinner. And Luke chapter 14, just to give you some context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And, and from chapter 12 all the way up to this place, he's been, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about who's getting in the kingdom and who's not getting in the kingdom and, and what the kingdom of heaven is, is like. And we won't go there, but if you go back to Luke chapter 12, he has this great multitude around him listening to his preaching. It, it, the, the Bible says that there's so many people there, they're stepping on top of one another. And he begins to preach this evangelistic sermon about, about the kingdom. That's the, the passage where Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. It's an evangelistic sermon where he says, beware the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And, and he says, guard your heart against covetousness because the chains of covetousness will keep you out of the, out of the kingdom. After he gets through that sermon in Luke 12, he goes to Luke 13, and you see him interacting with various people. And, and he makes number, uh, numerous references to the kingdom and parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And he talks so much about the kingdom. By the time you get to the end of chapter 13, and I do want you to look here. Look at verse 23 of chapter 13. He talks so much about the kingdom, who's getting in, who's not getting in, that, that this question comes in verse, verse 23 where, where it says, Lord, are there just a few who are going to be saved? I mean, if the kingdom of heaven is like that, then, then, then who's getting in? Is anybody getting in? It seems to be what they're saying. And then as this chapter winds down, Jesus responds and says, there will be many who will try to enter, but they're going to find the door the door shut. And look at verse 28 of chapter 13. It says, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, and pay attention to this, in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are the last who will be first and the first who will be last. The, the kingdom of God, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and they're going to be reclining at the table. That's all kingdom references. The last thing that you see Jesus doing in chapter 13, before we get to our passage, is mourning over Jerusalem based upon what he's just said about there are going to be some who are going to be thrust out. Look at verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who, sent, who are sent to her, how often I would have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another reference to the kingdom. The entrance to the kingdom. That's why they're saying that at the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And right out of that, after all of that, you, you roll into chapter 14, verse 1, and, and, it, and it almost just seems nonchalantly. And now it happened as he, that's Jesus, went into the house of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. He's got all this kingdom preaching, 
All this who's getting in and who's out, to the point that they're wondering who is, if anybody can get in. Jesus says that you're going to be cast out, there are others going to be come in. He weeps over Jerusalem, and then Luke rolls right into this scene of Sabbath, Sabbath meal. You see, in Jesus' day, the kingdom of God was, was an earthly thing that included a great feast. And from a Jew's standpoint, they were guaranteed entry because they were Abraham's seed. And Jesus informs them that's not the case. And in Luke chapter 14, you're going to see Jesus issue a call to enter the kingdom. And you're also going to see God's guest list. And only those who understand their spiritual condition are, are going to, to enter So in Luke chapter 14, we're going to cover verses 1 through 24, and I'm going to walk you through that. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to show you how it breaks down now, and then we're going to dig into it. But this is what you're going to to see. There's an exposure of those who are excused from the kingdom. And Jesus is going to deal with three different groups of people. He's going to deal with the Pharisees first at the meal, and then he's going to turn to the invited guests who are jockeying for positions and, and the chief seats, Then he's going to turn to the host himself, and then he's going to give this parable. And you know the parable well. Adam quoted it. We sang about it. Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be be filled. In all of these three dealings that Jesus has up front with these three groups of people leads him to give the parable that we know. So we want to keep all of it together, and that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So there's the exposure of those who are excused from the kingdom. There's the credentials of the true guest, when you're going to find that in the parable. And then I'm going to make an observation for you about the tasks of the servants. And you're going to, we're going to pull that out of the parable itself. So let's look at verse 1. Let's look at the exposure of those who are excused. Jesus deals with three groups here in verses 1 through 14. There's the self-righteous Pharisees. They're going to be excluded. There's the self-promoting guests. They're going to be excluded. And then there's the self-centered host. And he's also going to be excluded. Each of these interactions that Jesus has with different people at the same lunch represent people that are not getting in the kingdom. So when you're listening to this, you evaluate your own heart and you see which camp you fall into. One of these first three, or do you fall into the camp where your name would be on the the guest list? Let's read in verse 1 of Luke chapter 14. It says, Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely or intently. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees and said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. These things. There's the first interaction with the self-righteous Pharisees. And the Word of God shows us in this first interaction that the self-righteous will be excused from the kingdom. This is an exposure because these Pharisees clearly thought they were getting in the kingdom. 
And Jesus exposes them and shows them that they're actually going to be excused. Now, verse 1, we got the setting. And also some clues about an unspoken reason for Jesus' invitation. He was invited by the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. Now, that's important because Luke is setting the scene up. They don't just invite Jesus because they're nice guys and they want to hear from him. They watch him, they invite him, and then they watch him lurkingly. Lurkingly. Now, around my house for at least 12 years, both at Hooper and also where I'm at now, we have cats. And we have plenty of cats. Usually we have one cat, and then miraculously that cat turns into many cats. You may have this problem. And if there's anything that I like about a cat, which there's not very many things I like about a cat, but if there's anything, they're fascinating to watch sometimes. And you're looking out the window, and you'll see them, and they'll see something way far off, and you'll watch them crouch. And then they'll get down, and they'll almost wriggle, you know, and, and then they'll, whatever they're watching will turn away, and they'll go a little farther, and then they'll crouch down, and they're lurking. And that's the idea of this word here. The Pharisees are like cats. They're waiting to pounce on their prey, and their prey is, is Jesus. The only problem for the Pharisees is the, the, the mouse that they're after is the Son of God. Now, that's not very fair odds. They should have thought about that before they decided to do battle with Him. Enter the trap. Look at verse 2. So they're watching Him closely, and behold, that's important, behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now, I want you to notice Luke doesn't tell us who this man is. Luke wants us to see that he just appears before the crowd, specifically Jesus. Behold, there was a certain man. That's important because this man wouldn't have been on the invitation list because he would have he, he had a sickness. A dropsy was a condition that the Pharisees considered the judgment of God. So this man is not just some guest that happens to be there. This guy's a setup. This is why it's so important where Luke says that they're watching him lurkingly, and in comes the trap. Behold, he appears. Now, you've heard this before, but dropsy's not a bad case of clumsiness. It's edema. It's swelling. Um, you remember when, uh, when Brother Jim Warner had that issue with his finger. You remember how big his arm got? That's an idea of swelling, watery tension that comes from it. Even Aiden, you know, his picture had the, his forehead was really large from the swelling that was there. This is a person who has this condition, but they don't have antibiotics. They don't have things like we do where it would go away. And so they assumed that this man had evidence of God's judgment. So he was a setup. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. Behold, there's a certain man, verse 2, before him, that's Jesus, And look at verse 3. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. He doesn't speak to the man. Nobody asked him a question. He just immediately begins to speak to the lawyers and the Pharisees. And he asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now here's their dilemma with Jesus' question. If they say yes, then they violated their own self-righteous standards. If they say no they realize that God can heal, so they're going to be accused of blaspheming. So it says, they kept silent. Verse 4, they say nothing. And then I tried to emphasize this in the reading in verse 4. In dramatic fashion, He took him, He healed him, and He let him go. Jesus 
knows they're not going to answer. He takes hold of the man, literally grabs him and embraces him, he heals him, he sends him away, presumably back out the door where he came from. And then Jesus turns and unmasks the Pharisees' self-righteousness. Look at verse 5. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They would pull a donkey out of the ditch, but they wouldn't heal a man. Be careful when your religious standards or the things that you attach to your Christianity become more important than people. Seriously. Jesus says you'll pull an animal out of the ditch, but frown on God pulling a man out of disease. It's a lesser to a greater argument. You'll pull a donkey out, but you won't pull a man out. And you want a modern-day example of that? They're self-righteous and blind. You remember, we've talked about the outrage that people had about Cecil the lion versus planned parenthood. They're angry about a lesser, and they deny the greater, regardless of whether you think Cecil should be hunted or not. It's still a lesser to a greater argument. You saw it not if you watched any of the debate the other night. They were fact-checking Carly Fiorina's point about Planned Parenthood, but didn't pay any attention to fact-checking Planned Parenthood themselves. Right? Verse 6 says that they made no reply. They could not answer him regarding these things. And Jesus says, you refuse to answer? Here's your answer. Labor ceases on the Sabbath, but compassion doesn't. They were hypocrites. They were trying to condemn Jesus, but they actually condemned themselves by their own standards. They were hypocrites. I love this quote. I think I've shared it with you before. Someone said, someone defined a hypocrite as the guy who complains there's too much sex and violence on his DVD player. Now, think about that one. A self-righteous person is someone who attempts to manufacture their own righteousness. They create self-imposed standards and then they evaluate others by those standards, excusing themselves. It's a righteousness based on human effort that leads to pride and leads to to boasting. Stephen Cole of Dallas Theological Seminary gave a list that I think is very helpful. Self-righteousness. A self-righteous person judges the sins of others while overlooking their own sins. This is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew, where he talks about take the, the, the beam out of your own eye so you can get the splinter out of, out of another's. A self-righteous person judges the sins of another's while, while overlooking their own sins. And we talked about this before. How much easier it is for me to see the frailties and the failures and the sins in other people than what's staring back at me in the mirror, right? So easy to see how everyone else comes up short and how there's a boatload of excuses for why that doesn't apply to me. Well, let me give you this, the second one that he gives you. A self-righteous person judges others based on selective standards but not God's Word. Pet sins are pointed out, and it's usually the ones that, that they keep. Selective standards. Who can stand before the bar of God? You can find others, 
that are failing at this point or that point, but who can stand before the bar of God? No one can stand before the bar of God. And if you hold yourself to the bar of God, you'll be far less apt to point out others where they fail to meet the bar of God. A self-righteous person is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only gaining a following for their for their cause. They're self-centered. Their Christianity is a is an outward is an outward show. Let me give you the next one. The self-righteous person justifies himself by comparing himself with others or by blaming others for his or her sins. The bar of comparison is not God, but man. And all of that leads them to attack others, which is why you see the Pharisees setting this whole thing up, bringing Jesus in like prey, them being like cats, and putting the bait, the bait before him. When a person... How can you tell whether you become self-righteous? Whether that's crept into your life as a believer? When you find someone that you presume is more spiritual than you, your natural inclination is to pull them down, is to attack them, is to find something to bring them down to your level so they don't convict you, right? It's a natural inclination of the human heart, saved or not. You bring them down to your level in your mind or publicly or some otherwise so so you won't feel so condemned. And when they don't measure up to your own standard, when you find somebody that you presume beneath you, then you don't try to lift them up, you, you, you get an air of superiority. And when you yourself don't measure up to that own standard, then as I said, you find a reason for why it won't apply or doesn't apply to you in, in those stations. And the, and the Pharisees were masters at this. And Jesus knows what they're, what they're up to. And so He deliberately breaks their standard. He declares God's true intent on the Sabbath. He unmasks them, showing them that they're violating their own standard and because of that they're going to be excused. And then, as if his work was not done, he turns to the second group. Look at verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited. Same feast. And he did this when he noted how they chose the best places. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places, the best places, the places of honor. Now, I don't have time to point this out to you, but you can see it as you look. The key word in this section, verses 7 through verse 11, it's the next scene, is invited. Well, let me just show you in verse 7. It was those who were invited. Look at verse 8. You who are invited by anyone. Look at the end of verse 8. One more honorable than you. Be invited by him. Verse 9. And he who invited you. Look at verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes. It's, it's all about the, the invitation here. And Jesus turns to the invited guest, away from the scribes and Pharisees, and it begins to teach him. And this is a hilarious scene when you think about it, because Jesus is the invited guest, and he's acting like the host. And I also think it's, it, it's, it's hilarious 
Because evidently these guys aren't paying any attention to what's going on with the scribes and the Pharisees. It's like this is going on over here where Jesus is totally exposing the self-righteous crowd. And then these people are over here going around trying to figure out how they can get in the best seat with no one without paying attention to what's going on. And Jesus turns and sees. It says, when? He tells this parable in verse 7. When he noted how they chose the best seats. I'm sure somebody's wondering at this point why we invited this guy. He's spiritually exposing the Pharisees, and in the background, these other guests are picking out places of honor. The word that's used here in verse 7, he noted how they chose, how they elected the seats, how they, it emphasizes how the guests chose the seats themselves rather than the host assigning the seats, which would have been normal. I mean, seating at a meal happened after the washing of hands and before there was the symposium, before the speech was, was given. And the guests were seated in rank of honor. We still do this today. When you come into a reception, there's typically a head table. Guests of honor. And then you'll see reserve seats that are out there. The family sits a little bit closer. Same deal. And you, as the guest, don't come in and just plop down up on the head table uh, right beside the bride and the groom. Whoever's giving the feast is the one that chooses where you sit. And you're, you're seated based upon your honor, based upon your relationship. But that's not what these people were doing. It was normal for the most honored guest to arrive later than the rest. Maybe this is where fashionably late comes from. And it happens the same way, right? Everybody comes over after the bride and the groom take their three and a half hours worth of pictures while you're sitting here starving to death, right? And then the honored guests come in. And here in the midst of this, same deal, these guests were jockeying for choice seats. And it was all about status. Who sits where? Who seemed most important? And Jesus observes this and speaks a parable to them. Look at verse 8. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place or the place of honor, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, by the host. And he who invited you and him, that's the more honored person, will say to you, give up your place to this man. And then you being with shame, Take, have to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, do this. Go sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he might say to you, friend, come up higher. And then you will have glory. Now watch this. In the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And watch this kingdom language. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's kingdom language. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a real live lunch going on where Jesus is exposing people, but he's tying it to a much bigger spiritual principle. It's about the guest list of the, of the kingdom. And his point is found in verse 10 and 11. These men were trying to exalt themselves before other men, and Jesus says the other guests might not know who you are in rank. Have you ever been in a wedding? And you might not know who is the family or who's not? You don't know who's honorable and who's not honorable. You may know some, but you're not going to know all. And Jesus is saying, other people might not know who you are or your rank, 
But the host knows. The host knows. The host knows whether you're on the guest list or not. The host knows where you're at on the guest list. The host knows you might fool other people. You might fool other people that are at the feast, outside of the feast. But the host knows. And he who is invited, and the rank of each, the host knows. And you're going to be exposed, and it's going to be public. And the point of the parable of the self-promoting, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. George Herbert said in his song, Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. You'll not enter heaven. You'll not enter the kingdom with your head held high. You'll enter it one day when Jesus returns because of the victorious Christ, but when you first come into the kingdom, you're bowed low. You're weighted down by your sin, and you realize that. And so you bow just like the, the, the one who smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You don't stand as the Pharisee and say, I'm glad I'm not like X, Y, and Z. And Jesus pointed to this to those who are exposed. Self-exalted people don't go to heaven. Humbled people do that are humbled by their sin. And you may fool men or women with religious props or positions, but you'll not fool God because the host knows. And if He's gracious, if He's gracious, He'll unmask you before you ever get to the day when you'll be publicly exposed before the great white throne. Well, let me show you this last group. Verse 12, Then He also said to him who invited him, Now He turns to the host. Now, Jesus is already unmasked and spiritually proud. He exposes self-promoting who try to pretend that they're something that they're not. And now he exposes the host for being self-seeking. And by this time, I am sure they would love to rescind the invitation of Jesus. It was a practice in those days to invite guests to your home to eat. And when you, whatever you provided for them, they would try to outdo it theirs people would actually turn down invitations. If a lesser was invited to a greater's home, they would turn down the invitation because they know that they couldn't reciprocate. I could not provide for you what you're going to provide for me. It was a quid pro quo. And that's exactly what Jesus is dealing with with this host. Look at verse 12. He also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, relatives or your rich neighbor, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. That's what Jesus is dealing with. Now I want you to pay attention to the man's guest list. This man's guest list included the rulers of the day. It included the Pharisees. It even included Jesus, who would have been considered a well-known rabbi. And all of these people were religiously or socially connected and the host knew that one day they would return the favor. He had a self-centered religion. He had a self-centered religion. James chapter 1, verse 27 gives us the idea of what a religion is supposed to be about, and I'll explain to you how that connects in a minute. This host 
serve God for what he could get from God. He invited guests who could repay him. He loved the gifts. He didn't love the giver. He gave in order to get. He served in order to be served. Popular psychology preaches it today. And sometimes it's subtly wrapped in Christian speech. Popular psychology says life is about you. It's about me. Find yourself. Treat yourself with respect. Get to know the real you. Take care of number one. If you don't, no one else will will do it. And unfortunately, that has crept into a lot of American Christianity. Megan, Megangelicals see Jesus as a need meter who just happens to be God. Unfortunately, whenever you, you understand Jesus is a need meter, but you make it that the only thing that it's about, the gospel becomes serving God because He will serve me with eternity rather than having your eyes opened to who Christ is and who you are in light of who Christ is. And in that case, Jesus is nothing more than a better deal. Jesus says if you live that way, you'll get your reward on earth. That's what he says. Look at the end of verse 12. Lest they invite you back and you be repaid. But look at verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And watch this, kingdom language. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's another kingdom reference. He says, when you invite the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame, you'll be rewarded in the resurrection. Now, what's Jesus' point? Is it just because it's his main point that he cares about the poor? Well, Jesus cares about the poor, but that's not his point. These are all people who have need, but they cannot repay. That's the point. He's inviting people that can give him back rather than people who cannot. And Jesus says, for all those that you serve who cannot repay you, here and now, God will repay their debt in the kingdom. That's where James 1.27 comes in. Pure religion, undefiled in the sight of God and the Father, is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress, in their distress and keeps oneself unspotted or unsaved by the world. Now, James is not advocating a social justice crusade. He is saying that the true test of whether you're a Christian... The essence that, that shines before God is not how you treat those who can give you something in return, but how you treat people that you know can give you nothing in return. How you treat someone who has no ability to pay you is a genuine test of whether you get the gospel or not. Because it's exactly what the gospel is all about. God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that leads to this parable. Look at verse 15. The credentials of the guest. Now, you don't have to write all this down, but this is the breakdown of the parable. It's all one scene. It's all a parable. The master of the feast is God. Those that are invited are the, are the Jews. And the way that the parable, the story goes, is the RSVP invitations are going out. In verses 18 through 20, excuses come back. I've got a wife. I've got oxen. I've got land. A new guest list is initiated. In verses 21 through 23, and the exclusion of the original invitees. 
And look how he gets to this parable in verse 15. Here is a guy. You think that the guys were jockeying for seats, not paying attention to the guy with drops. He was oblivious. This guy's really oblivious. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Another kingdom reference. And Jesus then speaks a parable. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at the supper time, saying "Those to those who were invited. Notice that. Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of ground. I must go see it. Excuse me. Another said, I bought five yokes of oxen. They have to be tested. Excuse me. Verse 20, still another, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of house, being angry, said to the servant, craft a new guest list. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in here. Now watch this. Connect this to the previous story. The poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, outside of the the walls of the city, to the realms of the Gentiles. Compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, here's the exclusion of the original, original invitees, none of those men... None of those men who were self-righteous, none of those men who were self-promoting, none of those men who were self-centered, none of those who were invited shall taste my supper. Now again, you have a very common statement. A wedding could last up to a week in Israel, and guests were told ahead of time of the wedding. And they RSVP'd. And these people have RSVP'd. Let me know. When the feast is going to happen. Unlike today, where we would set a date, okay, on the September the 24th, we're going to have a wedding. You would RSVP, and then you would be told when everything was ready. And that's what happens. The servant is going out to the RSVP guests, this is the Jews, who are supposed to be expecting the Messiah, and say, the Messiah is here, the kingdom is ready, the table is set, now come. And they all excused themselves, which is why you find Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. When the meal was ready, it was common for the host to send out the servant and call the guests to the table. And when that happens, excuses are given that's lame, even insulting, in light of the occasion and their previous willingness to come. Why do you do an RSVP? Isn't it rude to RSVP for something and then not just not show up? How much ruder is it when the God of heaven gives you an invitation into the kingdom and you say, you'll come as Jews? And so the host, being angry, it says, doesn't postpone the banquet. He doesn't withdraw the meal. He gets new guests. Look at verse 21. Look who's on the list. Go out at once into the streets, into the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor 
and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The guest list is not the standard keepers. It's not those approved by men. It's not the self-centered, the wealthy, or the connected. It's the spiritual poor, the crippled by sin, the impotent to do anything themselves, and the blind. And Jesus, in this parable, says two things. The leaders of Israel were going to miss the kingdom. And those that God invites in their place are those who understand their condition. Do you understand your condition this morning? You have absolutely no standing whatsoever before God in your righteousness, and neither do I. The only hope that you have or that I have of getting into the kingdom is the gracious invitation of the host. And then, even if we got the invitation, we have no wedding garment. We have no right to stand. We have no righteousness to stand before God. If God said to you, come, you would be consumed because He is a holy God and in your sin, you need a wedding garment. And the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sins and His righteousness provides you the wedding garment to stand at the gracious invitation of the host. And those who come are those who understand that they have nothing to alter, to offer. And look at verse 22. Make this final observation. The task of the servants. Now in this parable, we focus rightly on God, who is the feast giver. The guests, the old guests that were that RSVP, that were invited and gave excuses, and the new guest list, us, who understand we have nothing to offer God. But there's also another main character in here, and that's the servants. Or the servant. It's literally a bond slave. It's a slave. And here this, this slave serves the master by announcing the feast is ready and bringing the guests to the the table. Look at verse 21. The master of the house, being angry with the previously invited, said to his servant, Go out and bring in. Go out quickly into the streets of the lanes and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lamed and the blind. That's a very uncomplicated task. I'd underline that in your Bible. Go out and bring in. Now, I want you to notice that this servant here doesn't determine when the invitation is given. Doesn't determine to who the invitation or to whom the invitation is given. Doesn't determine on what grounds the invitation is given. The invitation is already made. The servant just goes out at the master's command and announces all preparations have been made. And then they bring them to the banquet. Isn't that how this whole thing starts? Look back at verse 17. And he sent his servant at supper time to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. The banquet is ready. You and I don't even set the table as a servant. We just bring them to the house where they may eat. And we don't find the self-righteous or the self-promoting or the self-centered in their self-righteousness. We show them 
exactly what the Word of God has shown us, that they're blind and crippled and poor and lame in their sin, but yet there is still room because of the Master's gracious invitation. Let me give you something to consider. It says, the master of the house was angry whenever they gave the excuses. Do you think if the master was so upset with the guest who RSVP'd but didn't show, and that he was so angry that he got all new guests that he won't be upset with his own servant or servants that won't go out and won't bring in, that won't go out and announce the feast? Or they complicate the invitation with self-made rules or otherwise. We have the only invitation to salvation that there is. There's only one place, there's only one fountain that you can find the forgiveness of sin. And that's in Jesus Christ. And it is offered freely to all who will repent and believe. Go out and announce it and then bring them to the table already set. Would you bow your heads with me, please? What a convicting, exposing, and comforting passage of Scripture. Let me ask you, as Jesus starts with these three groups that aren't getting in, are you on the list? The guest list of God's feast. Jesus shows who's invited and who's excused. Do you think if you can you work a little harder, somehow you can repay God? You're a lost host. You think you're a pretty good guy? You're an exposed Pharisee. You think others esteem you so God does? You'll be asked to move aside for the sick and the poor and the lame who know they are. Are you on the list? If you're crippled by your sin and you know what you are, then Jesus would say to you, come and I'll give you life. What about you, Christian? Do you see yourself as a servant for the Master? Are you going out? Are you bringing in? Has, has, has your life, have the sins of others, have, have the difficulties of the world so clouded your mind that you've lost sight of souls? You've lost sight of heaven and hell. You've lost sight of, of joy and the bitterness of people spending eternity without Christ. I would plead with you this morning. You are just a servant like anyone else is. You're a bond slave. And you're to go announce what the Master has commanded, that it is ready, and bring them in, and that's it. Anything more, leave to the Lord Jesus, who is well equipped, much better equipped than I or you.